Okay, let's get underway. Now, yesterday morning I was trying to show you some books from the bookstall and I, I just couldn't speak fast enough to get through them all and I foolishly had left the best ones till the end because I was trying to come to a great climax and then I ran out of time. So I thought I'd better just tell you a few books to read. I had four books left to show you. Uh, this one is just an absolute Christian classic and I last year I said I didn't think that you should be allowed to graduate uh, until you'd read this book and they promptly sold out 15 minutes after the session. Um, I'm hoping that happens again because I still actually believe that. Uh, this book is, called, is by John Stott. It is absolute classic now. It came out in the 1980s. I remember reading it soon after it came out in first year when I was at EU and it blew my mind. And since that time it's, it's become a well, it's just it, this is like the definitive evangelical work, contemporary evangelical work on the cross of Jesus. This, I really think this is a must read, right? This will stretch your mind. This will really help you understand what, what God was doing in Christ at the cross like nothing else you've ever thought of. This is like, you know, it's just, you just need to read this book. You need to buy it and read this book, okay? So that's there. Now, three books on the spirit. Uh, first of all, a classic is an older classic, J.I. Packer. You've heard us quote him a few times, both me and Steve. Keep in step with the spirit. Uh, this is a bit of a classic work now. Um, I've heard people, had people say to me before this conference, oh, Packer's keeping the step with the spirit. I found that a bit dry. And um, I must say, I'd never really, I never read it before this conference, and I've been dipping into it and reading bits of it, and the bits I've dipped into and read, I, I think that it looks dry, right? Text. <laughs> There's no pictures. No, no groovy diagrams, but when you read Packer, Packer is not just a theologian, he's a pastor. He has a real heart like Christ, and you read it, and he's passionate as he writes. That's what an exclamation mark means. He's getting passionate at that point. So I don't find this dry. I find this actually quite rich. It's like a really rich mud cake. You're going to try and sort of read the whole lot. You're just going to vomit. <laughs> Take it in portions and, and think about it. It's really good. Um, uh, another more recent work by another guy, Gordon Fee. Uh, of, uh, uh, the, I th Gordon Fee is one of the great evangelical exegetes of the Bible. This is the cut-down version of a much bigger book he wrote. He wrote a, a massive book, which we didn't put on the bookstore because it, it costs a lot of money, but it's, it's a fantastic book, called God's Empowering Presence, about the Spirit. He looked at every reference, like every mention of the word spirit in the letters of Paul in the New Testament and wrote a, basically a commentary on every single reference. It's a book like this. It's fantastic. I, I have it on my shelf. I use it all the time. Whenever I'm reading any passage in the Bible and there's a word spirit, I go, well, I know who's got something to say about that. And I open up the book and there it is and I read it because he's a really careful exegete. He comes from a more charismatic background. Um, this is his, his summary, really, of his findings. Uh, I don't agree with absolutely everything, but then I don't tend to agree with absolutely everything any, anywhere I read because the Bible's our ultimate source, not any other particular commentator. But that's a, a good book, worth reading, and will really enrich you. Finally, a book that's just come out, and I'm, 
I think this is a really, really useful reference book on the spirit. It's by Graham Cole, an uh, Australian guy now working in a seminary in the US. It's called He Who Gives Life. I've read this book in preparation for this conference from cover to cover, just started at page one, read it all the way to the end, and I got a heck of a lot out of it, and I found him easy to read. Um, apart from the fact that he tends to like really fancy words every now and then, but that's okay. Um, the thing I found helpful about the book, this is, this is going to be from now on, I figure, my standard reference book on the spirit. And I've found that whenever now I've been thinking about something in the spirit, since I read it, I've gone, I'll just check what Cole has to say. And I look it up in the index, I go to it. And what I like about it is most topics are at most maybe two pages and often less. He's very succinct but deeply biblical and has a brain the size of several galaxies, which means that he's read an awful lot. And he just distills it down in quite a, uh, I just think it's a very skillful, helpful way. And so this, this for me is becoming the new sort of standard uh, reference book, if you like, for me, in terms of, uh, just in terms of, oh, if I want to know what people are saying, he'll, he'll give me some idea of what people are saying, as well as point me to the scriptures. So there's some books that might be useful. I think those books should all disappear uh, from the bookstore, not because you steal them, but because you've bought them. <laughs> And I think tonight's your big opportunity. So, um, you know, just let's get rid of those books tonight, all of them. Okay. Tonight, the spirit of love. No, I'm just, I'll just keep going. It's all right. I can't talk and, I can't talk and. That's right. The spirit of love. Miracles, prophecy, tongues, words of knowledge. Are they weird, wild and wayward or are they warm, wonderful and warranted? These are some of the more contentious gifts of the spirit. Are they weird, out of control and inappropriate for today as some say? even unavailable today? Or are they warm, wonderful and warranted as other Christians claim? We're going to look at the whole question of spiritual gifts tonight and see if we can get some clarity on these questions. As a first step in the process though, what we want to do is see how the Bible frames its discussion of these things. Because that's how we'll need to inform our understanding and that's what we'll need to shape our practice of spiritual gifts, whatever framework the Bible gives it. So when we do that, when you actually turn to the Bible and actually read it carefully, what you realise is there is an absolutely essential but often overlooked spiritual fact. You can see the heading there. What is this absolutely essential but often overlooked spiritual fact. It's this. It is not about you. It is not about you. That is, when we talk about gifts and experiences, it is so often we talk about about ourselves. What are my gifts? What are my experiences of God? Now, those are real questions, and we're going to talk about them in just a little bit. But if that is where we start, 
with questions about me and whatever spiritual gifts and experiences I might have, then we really have missed the point. Because the absolutely essential spiritual fact is that it's not about you. Why can I say that? Well, let's have a look at the way the discussion of spiritual gifts is framed in the Bible. Now, 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 are really important passages that discuss spiritual gifts, but it's vital that you never just rip out a particular verse or passage out of Paul's letters without grasping the shape of the whole. Because Paul often has a very deliberately a shape, a narrative, if you like, to his letter. He's building a case, making a case. And so when you look at 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14, there's a shape, and you can see the shape there on the page. It's, it's like a mountaintop. Let me trace it out for you, but you need to open your Bible and have a look at 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 there. One Corinthians twelve is all about spiritual gifts. That's the whole chapter. But note verse thirty-one, right at the end of the chapter, which is the link into his next theme, which happens to be chapter thirteen. Note verse thirty-one, the note on which Paul finishes this section. He says, "But strive for the greater gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way." Then Paul heads off into chapter 13, which is all about love. That is, love is the more excellent way. More excellent way than possessing gifts or even using gifts in a self-focused way. Love is at the top of the mountain peak. So on the ascent up the left side of the mountain peak, you can put chapter 12, and then there's that key linking verse, 12 verse 31, which he says, strive for the greater gifts, that's chapter 12, and now I'll show you a more excellent way, which takes you to the top of the mountain, which is chapter 13, all about love. Then note, note how chapter 13 ends. Look at chapter 13, verse 13. He says there, and now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, and the greatest of these is love. And then go on to the next verse, another linking sentence. Pursue love and strive for the spiritual gifts, especially that you might prophesy. And then he continues on in a discussion of spiritual gifts and their use. So do you see the shape there and the two linking sentences on either side? 12.31 and 14.1 mirror each other. They reflect the shape. Strive for the gate of gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. Pursue love, and strive for the spiritual gifts. The most excellent peak in the middle of this discussion of gifts is love. Just by the shape of his argument, he's trying to reinforce his point. Love is the big deal. Love, if you like, towers over his discussion of gifts so that any discussion of gifts ha happens in the shadow of the tower of love. You take your discussion of gifts outside the shadow of the tower of love, you have completely misunderstood what he's trying to say. 
So that's why I say that the absolutely essential but often overlooked spiritual fact is that gifts are not about you because love is fundamentally other person centered. Love is always directed to the other person. And so if our discussion of gifts happens in the shadow of the tower of love, then whatever gifts you have from the Spirit, they are not about you. It's about other people. It's not about your experience of God. It's about other people's experience of God through the gifts that God's given you. It's not just here in 1 Corinthians. In each place in the New Testament where spiritual gifts are discussed, love is always the context. So in Romans chapter 12, 1 Peter 4, Ephesians 4, you can look up the verses there, I've got them on your book. You'll see that what's talked about is love or serving others or humility or not thinking too much of yourself. It's always other person directed every time. Actually, love is even more than the context for our discussion of gifts. Love is outrageously essential. And so if we go back to the mountaintop of love, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13, this mountaintop part, Paul makes exactly this point that love is outrageously essential by using a series of supercharged examples. He says, if I speak in the tongues of mortals, okay, regular speech, okay, if I speak in the tongues of mortals... And of angels, whoa, now, that's, now you're talking something impressive, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He does another one. If I have prophetic powers, that's pretty impressive, and supercharge that up, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have faith, okay, supercharge that, so as to remove mountains... But do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, just think about that. That's a pretty serious act of generosity, right? Give away all your possessions. But then he supercharges that and hand over my very body so that I may boast. That is, you know, I, I die for the faith. But I do not have love, I gain nothing. Now think about that, all that sacrifice, you're a full-on martyr, you die for your faith. Surely that commitment is worth something. No. If you don't have love, you've gained nothing. Love is outrageously essential. And Jim Packer concludes, reflecting on this, he says, any mindset which treats the Spirit's gifts ability, willingness to run around and do things, as more important than his fruit, Christ-like character in personal life, is spiritually wrong-headed and needs correcting. See, the Spirit works gifts and fruit in your life, but they are not equally important. Character fruit is more important than gifts. That's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. The fruit of love is more important than any gift. So much so that no matter how awesome your gift is, without love you are nothing. Now may I just say, there are so many talented people in the room tonight. I mean, you, 
wow, you know, that was awesome. But I don't just mean that. I mean all of you, actually. <laughs> you are all so talented. But under God and his ordering of things, it's not your gifts that matter or count for anything. The only thing that counts is whether you love people. It's the only thing that counts. You can see why getting the framework right for our discussion is so important. But the good news is that what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life is turning you into a great lover. That is what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life, turning you into a great lover. So, point two, the Spirit empowers and equips for love. First of all, the Spirit empowers mutual love. Love really is the premier fruit of the Spirit. It's the Spirit's numero umro umro, numero uno fruit. Uh, I don't think it's an accident that it comes first in Paul's list of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is, first of all, love. That fits with love's status, right, as being outrageously essential. It fits with what Jesus says. John, now that Steve's gone, I can just use John's gospel finally, as freely as I like. Um, John, because we've, you know, we had this arrangement where I'd stay away from certain chapters of John's gospel, which was great, but now I'm in. <laughs> um, John 15.12. John 15.12. This is my commandment, says Jesus that you love one another as I've loved you. There it is. That's what I want you to do, guys. Love one another. Or again, John 13, 35. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus' disciples are lovers because Jesus loves. And the spirit that Jesus pours out into his disciples is the spirit whose first fruit is love, the mark of the Christian. And you can see some more verses there on your page that mention the love that the Spirit produces in us. Um, don't look down, actually. Don't look down at them for a moment. I'm going to read one out to you. Just listen. This is from 2 Timothy chapter 1. For God, says Paul to Timothy, did not give us a spirit of cowardice. Okay, a spirit of cowardice. So that's, you know, fear, timidity, a spirit, a spirit that sort of cowers back in fear. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, he says, but rather a spirit of power and of self-discipline. Now that sounds strong, right? That sounds tough. Instead of fear, there's power, self-discipline. But I actually skipped out the middle part of the verse. If you have a look now at the third passage there, 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, for God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. What stops us loving people is fear. Paul's saying you don't have a spirit of fear or cowardice. 
God didn't give you that spirit. He gave you a spirit of love. And actually, in the context of 2 Timothy 1, what Paul's trying to do at this point is Paul is trying to rev up Timothy. This is the, come on, Timothy, get on board here. And particularly when you read the whole section, which we're actually going to end with this passage tonight, he wants Timothy to love people by proclaiming Jesus, even though they both knew that would mean suffering for Timothy. Paul wants Timothy to love people by proclaiming Jesus, even though it's going to mean suffering for him. So that's why he says, Tim, mate, come on. The spirit God's given us, you and me both, is the spirit of love, which prompts us to want to tell them the gospel of Jesus. So don't resist or quench that spirit in you. He's the spirit of power, so you can rely on him to empower you to rise to the challenge of proclaiming Christ. And he's the spirit of self-discipline, so that we won't be ruled by fear. His spirit will help us to suck up whatever suffering comes our way as we proclaim the Lord Jesus. So if you're in Christ, then the Spirit empowers you to love others. But also, point B, the Spirit gives gifts to each Christian to enable us to serve others, that is, to love them. Now, I'm mindful that it is Thursday night, and the occasional gimmick can help. So since we're talking about God giving gifts... I thought I could at least try to help the kinesthetic learners. And so here we go, free gifts. Free gifts. Free gifts. Free gifts. Now, what are you guys doing up there? Stop, Kaz. Did I tell you to start? You ruined it, Caroline. Where's Verity? Verity knew what to do. Let's just pretend that didn't happen. Oh, that's it. I'm not doing any of those gimmicks again. They're way too complicated. Okay, let me keep going. God gives gifts through his spirit to enable us to love others, right? That's what I just said. Look at what he says there on the page, 1 Corinthians 12. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit. And then I was going to go, oh, no. Like, I have this written down. I'll read it. Oh, no. I just realized. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit. My minty moment wasn't very accurate. I really should give everyone a minty. Verity, can we fix that? In brackets, hand out minties to all. <laughs> I want every single person in the room to get a lolly. You have to get a lolly. Do not miss out. It is really important because this is an ongoing gimmick. Here we go. Get it. Everyone get one. Everybody get one. If you don't have one, put your hand up. If you don't have one, put your hand up. Heaps, come on. We got bought 600 of these babies. They're everywhere. Are we seriously run out? 
We can't. There's 600. If, if you've got them on the floor near you or you've got more than one, please run back and give them to people at the back. They're all missing out. Sorry? They're being passed around. Keep your hand up. Keep your hand up. Do some, who, who still does not have one? I re, I'm serious. I need everyone to have one. Okay, quick. Let's get those people some middies. Let's get those people some lollies. Hurry up. See, this is a lovely sharing moment, isn't it? We're looking after each other, getting every, so everyone's got a lolly. And when there's 3,000 people at Ancon, yeah, this will be hard. We won't do that. We'll look back on these days and say, wow, they were great days when we could hand out lollies to each other. Okay, it's Thursday. I'm getting a bit tired. Okay, everyone got one? Has anyone not got a lolly? Put your hand up. We want you to have a lolly. One, look, right down the front here. Okay, great, excellent. Thank you. Why am I at such pains to make sure everyone gets one? Because the point is to each, to each is, no, no. <laughs> Indeed, to each, to each. Let's do it all over again. <laughs> to each one. <laughs> to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. However, did you notice in that verse there, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, did you notice in the verse there, again, the same point, it's not actually about you, is it? You get the gift, but to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The gift is given to you for the sake of others. So don't eat that minty, by the way. Because, uh, wh why did you think it was for you? You just assumed. I got the gift, it's for me, baby, I'm on. It's not given for you, the gift. Mm, there's dissension out there now. People are pretty grumpy with that. Good. Peter says the same thing. Look at it. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. Like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. It's the same themes appearing again. It's not about you. You're a steward. A steward is someone who looks after someone else's property 
You're a steward of God's grace in whatever form, whatever gift God has given you, and it's not your gift, it's his. And to be a good steward means not hoarding it for yourself. It means serving others with whatever gift you've received. That's why you can't keep the minty, the fantail, for yourself. If you're going to be a good steward, you actually have to use it to serve somebody else. Now, let's just be honest. Who scoffed the lolly? May I just remind you of 2 Timothy chapter 1, you received a spirit of self-discipline. Don't, don't clap, you ate the lolly. Can I advise you to stop quenching the spirit in your life? Uh, it's okay, we've got the spirit of love, it's cool. You know, you're, I love you, you love me, it's all good. Okay, let's draw some of these points together, right? Because you, you know, I'm in South joking, I'm making a serious point here, or the Lord is, through his word. If you really want to love people, if you really want to love people, then you are going to be eager for the gifts of the spirit because that's how he equips you to love them. It's not about you. It's about loving them. Paul again there in 1 Corinthians 14, pursue love. What does that look like? In part, strive for the spiritual gifts. Or a bit further down, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 12, so with yourselves, since you are eager for spiritual gifts, strive to excel or be zealous to abound in them. Why? For building the church. For building the church. This is what the Spirit's doing, friends, empowering and equipping you through whatever gifts he's given you to love others and build the church. Now, like the lollies that we threw out, there's actually a variety, a diversity of gifts that the Spirit gives. Point three. Honoured diversity amidst profound unity. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. Paul says, Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are a variety of services, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who activates all of them in everyone. What's God telling us here? There are a variety of gifts, a Spirit-determined diversity, but they are all equally the gifts of the same Spirit. They are all equally exercised in the service of the same Lord, the Lord Jesus. And they're all equally activated and energised by the same God in each and every person. So there is a profound unity in that they come from the same Spirit, they're in the service of the same Lord, and they're powered by the same God. Therefore, a key implication of this is, though all the gifts we get might be different, because it is the same Spirit and the same Lord and the same God, a key implication is that we honour the diversity of gifts that God has given. Jump down to Romans chapter 12, 
verses 6 and 10 I've got there. Paul says, we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. But then a bit later he says, love one another with mutual affection, outdo one another in showing honour. It just seems to me that every time they talk about diversity, they, Paul knows, under the inspiration of the Spirit that was given to him, Paul knows that you talk about diversity, you've got to talk about mutual honour so that pride doesn't seep in. Now, there are three traps that we have to be careful to avoid here. You can see them there. Trap number one, disregarding your own spirit-gifted contribution. Paul uses the metaphor for the Christian community of a human body. So 1 Corinthians 12, verse 14. Indeed, he says, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, oh, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not actually make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I'm not an eye. I don't know why the ear sounds like that, it just does. But because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. Just, just think about that for a sec. Don't ever think that you need to be like so-and-so or you need to be like so-and-so in terms of their gifts in order to have a vital place in the body of Christ, in the Christian community. We all have different gifts as the Spirit chooses. So don't despise your own Spirit-equipped contribution. Now you might say, but I'm not musical. I'm not good at public speaking. I'm not an upfront person. I can't do anything really valuable. Listen to what Paul says next, verse 14. Verse 17, sorry. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? And if the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? That is, he's saying, you see the ridiculous notion that maybe we should all have the same gifts. But as it is, he says, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? Friends, we need each other. God has arranged us as members of Christ's body as he has chosen. And the implication of what Paul's saying here is that we need you. We, the rest of us, need you with whatever the gifts are that God through his spirit has given you. We really do need you. I need you. The people sitting around you tonight need you with the gifts that God has given you for the common good. So don't, please, don't despise the, your own spirit-equipped contribution. There's a second trap, despising the contribution of others. Flowing straight on, verse 20 from 1 Corinthians 12. As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. If you're a person who sometimes falls into the trap of thinking, yeah, that person hasn't got much to give. Or... 
oh, that person, you know, you know, lovely person, but not that important a person in our Christian community. If you ever think like that, you need to repent. I actually think it probably manifests itself not quite in an explicit negative like that, but probably more in an, an exclusive positive. That is, we go, oh, she's a really important person in our community. Implied, she's more important than most of the others. Or he's got gifts, look at what he does. Implied, what other people do, what gifts they have, they just aren't quite so key, strategic, important, valuable, useful. Part of the problem is that we bring these worldly values into our Christian community, which was the big problem Paul was addressing to the Corinthians. We esteem the upfront, the impressive gifts by, you know, that, that are sort of public by nature. Now, I say it's fine to esteem those gifts. You've just got to esteem the gifts that aren't public by nature as well. In fact, just as much. In fact, if we read on, we're told to honour the less esteemed gifts more. I think that's as a corrective that embodies our commitment to valuing the contribution of every single person. So reading there from verse 23, and those members of the body that we think less honourable, we clothe with greater honour. And our less respectable members are treated with greater respect. Whereas our more respectable members don't need this. It means I'd, I don't need public respect. But quite possibly the person working behind the scenes who labours on just as faithfully, just as with the same spirit and the same Lord and the same God with different gifts, maybe we need to esteem them more, honour them more. I think we've just brought worldly values into our Christian community and we need to listen again to what God is saying through the apostle here to us. This trap of despising the gifts of others is, of course, even worse when you despise the gifts and contributions of others when you're comparing them to yourself. You know, when secretly you go, yeah, I mean, they're not really at my level. You know, I'm, I'm moving with this crew, these select people. That's the crew I'm in and the others. I mean, you know, we pray, you know, Lord, use them, but... They don't really have the gifts I've got. Man, that is rank. That, is, that has just the foul stink of pride. You think they're not as good as you? You think they're not as valuable as you? Not as significant? Just think for a moment. Do you seriously think... I told you it was an ongoing gimmick, right? Do you seriously think that the people around you, because you got a fantail and they got minties, do you, would you honestly, honestly, would you seriously think that you're, a, you're better than them? I mean, honestly, if someone seriously thought that they were a more important person because they got a fantail 
you just look at them and go, you're flipping crazy. Like, what? It was a gift. You didn't do anything to earn it. It was just given to you. What are you doing, man? Like, that's just nuts. So wake up to yourself. You are only an unworthy servant, says Jesus. Loved, yes, but an unworthy servant who only has whatever gifts you've got as a a sheer act of God's grace. You didn't conjure it up. You certainly never earned it. And the whole of your Christian life, from salvation to service, is an experience of God's grace. All of it. Don't be tempted by pride. God says, I oppose the proud, but give grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5 verse 5. And there's a third trap that we can fall into. Neglecting the gifts given by the Spirit to the body. There's a danger as individuals, but also as communities of God's people, that we, and I'm choosing my words carefully here in this section, that we over-restrict, over-restrict the exercise of spiritual gifts so that effectively we put a wet blanket on some of the Spirit's work. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 21, Paul's addressing the Thessalonian church. He says, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise the words of prophets, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Or in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 39, so my friends, he says, be eager to prophesy. And because with the Corinthians, they seem to be shifting from your one extreme to the other, whatever Paul said, they Woo, take that to the extreme. He says, oh, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, because he knows that that's a possibility. They might overreact to what he said, and they might forbid speaking in tongues. He says, don't do that. Now, one of Paul's big concerns in 1 Corinthians 14 is that in the exercising of spiritual gifts, there has to be good order. See, when Christians gather together, it is never to be a spiritual free-for-all. It must never be, wow, the spirit let loose and the whole meeting was out of control. That must never happen in a Christian community because it is not honouring to God. Why? 1 Corinthians 14.33, God is a God not of disorder but of peace. And Paul uses that to sort of then give his specific instructions for how to exercise gifts in the communal gathering. He says everything has to be done for the sake of building up the body. So he says everyone's to take turns, one at a time. And usually only a few. So he says two or three at most are to speak in tongues, one after the other. And the tongue has to be interpreted so that everyone benefits, not just the tongue speaker. And two or three prophets can speak, he says. Just two or three? One at a time. There's an order to our use of spiritual gifts so that we honour the God who's given them by reflecting his character in our use of them. So that's clear. However, what Paul says there in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 1 Corinthians 14 
it's clear that you can also over-restrict the use of gifts. You could forbid speaking in tongues. Or you could so despise prophecy that you don't allow it. And you don't allow it, therefore, to benefit the community. We're not to do that. And I'll come back to that a bit later. But let's move on. What sort of gifts then does the Spirit give? Well, you can see there on your page, I've got the main New Testament uh, passages that talk about gifts from 1 Corinthians 12, two, two points in that chapter, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. Um, you can read through the, the lists tomorrow and you will do that in review groups. Just some observations for you though. First, no list, no list of gifts in the New Testament is exhaustive. Each list is just indicative of the sorts of gifts that are given by the Spirit for the building of the church. So no list is sort of exhaustive. And even if you put them all together, I don't think that's exhaustive. 1 Peter 4 in particular is quite general. Whoever speaks and whoever serves. So it's quite open-ended what the specific gift might look like. Second though, what makes a gift a gift? What I mean is it seems from these passages listed, the thing that characterises a spiritual gift is its source and its purpose. Source, that is, it comes from the Spirit. And whilst that's probably important, it, it sort of doesn't help us a lot, um, partly because every good thing that we have <laughs> comes from God. So at that point, it's not really, it's not giving you a distinction between what's a spiritual gift and what's, say, a natural talent. And I put inverted commas around natural talent because... Every, every talent you have, every skill you have has come from God. So we can sometimes sort of draw this false distinction between, but is it a gift? It might just be a talent. I just think, well, it's all come from God. But it's important to remember, it has all come from God because that stops you falling into pride. However, the second thing there is purpose. A spiritual gift is for the building of the church. It's given for the common good, and that means common within the Christian community. So let me give you an example. Um, I, was, I was trying to remember, and I can't honestly remember what it's called. What's it called when you do that thing with paper and you fold it and you make a swan? Origami. I was going to call it macrami, and that's not right. <laughs> I knew it wasn't right, so I thought I'd ask you, and you've helped me. Thank you. If I had a pen, I'd write it down. Um, origami. Right. Well, let's say that I can do origami. It's a skill I have. I am an origamiist. You could say it's a talent that I've developed. I might even make my living from it. I don't know how, but maybe I could. Question, is it a spiritual gift as a Christian? Is it a spiritual gift? Well, it comes from God, like every skill and talent. But when the New Testament is talking about gifts, it's talking about building the body of Christ both upward in maturity and outward in evangelism. So it's really only a spiritual gift in the New Testament sense if I'm using it to build the body of Christ. How could I use origami, or makrami, to build the body of Christ? Well, I thought of at least one way that I could use origami. Why don't I run classes in the local community where I live, where I go to church, 
teaching origami to others as a connecting type ministry from my church as a means of building bridges into the community in order that we might then be able to invite those people to a different opportunity where they're actually able to hear about the good news of life in the Lord Jesus Christ. I could use origami as a way of connecting with those people who don't yet know Jesus. I could use it to build the church. And at that point, I reckon you'd sort of look back and go, wow, you used that to build God's church. That's Praise him for the, that gift that you've used. Now, what exactly are some of these gifts that are listed there in those lists in the New Testament? Well, the first point to note is that uh, for many of these gifts, it's actually quite difficult to say definitively, ah, this thing X that is happening in this particular church, this thing X is definitely the thing Y that is mentioned in the New Testament. It's actually really quite difficult to do that for some of these gifts. I know people are often very confident, but looking carefully, it's actually quite difficult to say. Uh, for example, I think, I think it is impossible to claim definitively that tongue speaking is this, or that prophecy is this, or that an utterance of knowledge is this, and it's distinct from an utterance of wisdom that looks like this. Now, the reason is, it's just, there's just not enough information in the New Testament itself to definitively describe what those gifts are. Some are clear. I don't have the same difficulty, say, with gifts of healing or working of miracles or teaching or generosity or compassion or encouragement. They seem reasonably clear what those things are but some are not. You can still build up a pretty good picture of what they might look like, but you can't be absolutely definitive because there's just not enough information. I'll give, I'll give you one example, one worked example, prophecy. If you work carefully through 1 Corinthians 14 as a start and then sort of build in information from the rest of the New Testament, you can build up a bit of an identikit picture of this gift of prophecy, but it is not enough to completely identify it, which is why Christians today still have different views on what prophecy is. But you can learn things about prophecy. For example, here's some of the things I just picked out from 1 Corinthians 14. Prophecy is div divinely inspired speech directed to other people for their building up encouragement and consolation which must be tested, weighed or sifted against God's sure revelation in Scripture to determine its validity or orthodoxy. In this way, contemporary prophecy is not like Old Testament prophecy, where prophets spoke infallible words of God, because contemporary prophecy is not automatically authoritative. It can be wrong. It has to be sifted against the revealed truths of God in Scripture because the revealed truths of God in Scripture are the sure foundation of our faith and life in Christ. But keep going from 1 Corinthians 14, you work out the prophecy can come spontaneously, but it doesn't say it will always be spontaneous. It could well be a revelation or an insight gleaned by sustained reflection on God's truth, in particular on maybe how God's truth interacts with the culture of the day or a contemporary situation faced by the church. 
And what then the content of the prophecy might be, well, it isn't necessarily knowledge of the future, though it can be that, and there's examples of that in the New Testament. It won't be a new theological truth from God because the prophecy has to be weighed against the revealed truths of Scripture. The scriptural revelation is primary. But it could be an insight into how God's truth applies into a contemporary situation or a particular pastoral application of God's truth. That's as a start. Now, if you'd like to talk more about that, you'd better come to question time. What about, should I expect to see all these in my church? Should I expect to see all these gifts in my church? That's a potentially very divisive question, which means we need to be really careful now. The reason is because of another vital spiritual fact, namely that the Spirit is meant to produce unity amongst God's people. It's meant to produce unity amongst God's people. Ephesians 4 verse 1, I therefore, Paul says, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, in the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in all. It is vital, let me be absolutely clear, it is vital that you not become a divisive or factional person. Because the body of Christ, as the body of Christ, we are one through the spirit. So make sure... As Paul begs them, live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Live with all humility and gentleness and patience and bear with one another in love. Maintain the unity in the spirit, in the bond of peace. So don't destroy Christian unity through your divisiveness over spiritual gifts. That would be a disaster and not bringing any honour to God who is at work in you by his spirit. Uh, D.B. Knox comments, he says, the unique gift of the Holy Spirit to Christians confers on them a real unity which is much deeper than any unity which an organisation or denomination can bring into being. It is an inner unity of a common possession of God's spirit who is active in guiding and strengthening those in whom he dwells and active in drawing them closer together because he draws each closer to himself. Christians in seeking unity one with another must not pin their hopes to an outward organisational unity. That would be a form of idolatry, for it would be trusting in something which is other than God. But the unity which is our Christian duty to seek will be found by growing in a deeper knowledge of God's word through studying it one with another and so growing in a common faith and in a common experience of God as he is revealed in his word while at the same time growing in love one for another. All these things are the work of God's spirit in our hearts who deepens our knowledge, who deepens our faith and who deepens our love. 
if we set ourselves to seek these things by his help. So that's just sort of got that straight, right? Still leaves us with a question, should I expect to see these things in my church? Okay, so let's tackle that question now. I'm going to tackle it by trying to sharpen the question through a series of questions. I'm going to argue with myself for a little while here. First of all, will the Spirit give all the gifts to every church? Will the Spirit give all the gifts to every church? No. There isn't even a list of all the gifts in the New Testament. He is good and he will give all the gifts that we need to fulfill our purpose from him, which is to build the body in love. Well, let me tighten the question. Will the Spirit give, not all the gifts, but maybe particular gifts to every church? Are there some gifts that he will give to every single church? Well, it depends on what gift you're talking about. Tongues, prophecy, miracles, words of knowledge, helps, faith, like the, the particular gift of faith, not usual Christian faith. I think the answer is no. I don't think he does promise to give those to every single church. However, and this is just a thought, what about teaching? I mean, there's no promise that he'll give teaching, it, but, but think about this. Every church is to have elders, and the, one of the qualifications of elders, according to the pastoral epistles, is that they are able to teach. So I assume, therefore, that every church has access to the gift of teaching. Third question, but is it possible that we are quenching gifts that the Spirit has given to our church? Is it possible we're quenching gifts that the Spirit has given to our church? Yes, certainly. We can be practically despising some gifts by not leaving space for the exercising of them. And that's a real problem. It's the same, I think, maybe, or related to never praying, maybe, that God would bless his people with the gifts of tongues or prophecy. See, Paul believed that the gift of tongues was edifying for the individual Christian. In fact, he wanted all the Corinthians to speak in tongues. Am I eager that all of you will speak in tongues? If not, doesn't that put me at odds with the Apostle Paul? Even more, more than Paul just wanting them to have the gift of tongues, he's even keener that they would prophesy. That's where he sees real benefit because tongues edifies you but the real point of gifts, apart from maybe tongues, the real point of gifts is, remember, love. You want to benefit others and prophecy is something that benefits others. So he's even keener that they would all prophesy. Am I keen? Am I eager? Am I longing? Am I praying that God might make you all prophets? 
Seems to me Paul would be. So yes, it's possible that we're quenching gifts the Spirit has given to our church. Okay, next question. What can I do about this? What ought I do about this? I don't run the church. Well, I've got three suggestions for you. First of all, pray. Pray for wisdom. Pray for your church. Second, talk. Talk to the elders. Whoever are the elders of your local congregation, your church, because they are responsible before God for the life of your church. Please don't start talking to lots of other people. Talk to the elders. When you start talking to lots of other people, what are you doing? You're trying to start your own mini reformation from the pew? Respect your elders, the New Testament says. Pray for them and talk to them. And don't go around trying to start like factions. What's that? Which is part of the third point here, submit. Pray, talk, submit. Submit to what God has said in Scripture. That means, amongst other things, speaking to the elders about your concerns. It means submitting to their leadership out of reverence for God, as the New Testament says. And it's no use complaining or causing division over the presence or absence of a particular gift of the Spirit when your complaining and causing division actually indicates a lack of the Spirit's presence anyway. And also you should submit to how God says gifts are to be used. Since tongues are to be interpreted in the corporate gathering, don't just start singing in tongues on a Sunday night unless you know it's going to be interpreted. And since prophecy is to be weighed and, and not just accepted, and I think Paul means weighed against Scripture, particularly by those who are entrusted with the teaching of the congregation, namely by the elders, unless you have elders... I mean, appointed according to the biblical model of elders. Unless you have elders in your small group, then I think it might be inappropriate to have prophecy in your small group. Which is also the reason why it is probably inappropriate for us to have open prophecy in the EU. Partly because... Because we're not a church, because we're sort of parachurch, we actually don't have designated eldership who've been appointed according to the criteria of the New Testament. Duncan is a great and godly president. He is is a great and godly president for which I know on the staff we give thanks to God for him, as I hope you do. But we don't actually appoint presidents on the basis of the pastoral epistles. So where's our eldership? Well, we don't really have... It's not sort of quite set up like that. We're a parachurch. We've got things that are like church. We teach the word like church. We meet and we pray and we sing like church. But, but we're not quite church. And so that, that, may, that makes it quite difficult, actually, to work out how would we have prophecy in a way that we could do it according to the Scriptures in a way that therefore would honour God. 
that, re that requires, you know, qu that's, yeah, difficult. Okay, so last two points here. I've, I've talked to the elders and I think they are being too restrictive in our church. I've done what you said, I pray, I talk, I'm submitting, but I've, I've talked to them, I think they're being too restrictive. Well, then bear with the conscience, bear with the conscience of your weaker brother. Well, the last, final point. I've talked to the elders and I think they are being too free. I'm concerned about what's going on. I think they're being too free. Well, at that point, it may become a conscience issue for you. And you need to work out, is this a core or a non-core issue? That's a really important decision to make at that point. And then I just want to probe deeper before we have a break, just in the last minute or two. I just want to ask a question. Why? Why do you think it is that we are longing for the extraordinary? Why is it that we do long for the, for the miracles, for the, the words of knowledge, for the prophecy, for the tongues that I can't even understand, for the... Why are we longing for the extraordinary? Now, I've got the... I got this sort of um, this comparison here from, from Liz Mansour. I, I found it really helpful. Is it holy ambition? That is, is it out of a genuine longing to see God's people built up? That is out of love for the rest of the community? Or is it actually all about me? And it becomes almost experiential gluttony. I want to affirm the desire that I hope we all have to know God more, to have more of God in our life. Because that desire is created by the Spirit of God. You see it reflected in the Psalms. You see it reflected in the prayers of the New Testament. But there is an important eschatological aspect to this. That is, we need to think carefully about what can I expect now in terms of my experience of God now and for what am I waiting? We need to think through that. And not bring the future more than is promised by God into the present. Because what we're going to talk about tomorrow morning is hope. The spirit of hope. And uh, the third this little thought here is we need to then to look to the scriptures to see what to do with this desire for more of God. God is known through his word by his spirit. Like Steve said yesterday morning, fill our heads with scripture so that we might know God, so that by his spirit he can write it deep onto our hearts and minds, push it home. Pray, pray that God might grant you a greater knowledge of himself. I don't mean head knowledge, I mean know him. Live a Christian life. It's actually a sure way to deepen your sense of connection with God is actually to live out your faith. Because you put it into action and you do what you probably wouldn't do otherwise because you're doing it for God. But all of that is grounded and impelled and supported and shaped and governed and directed and motivated by God's revealed word in the scriptures, which is the voice of God to you.
uh, Don Carson warns and challenges us here. Although I find, he says, no biblical support for a second blessing theology, I do find support for a second, third, fourth and fifth blessing theology. Although I find no charisma that is gift biblically established as the criterion of a second endowment of the Spirit, I do find that there are degrees of unction, blessing, service and holy joy, along with some more currently celebrated gifts associated with those whose hearts have been specially touched by the sovereign God. And although I think it is extremely dangerous to pursue a second blessing attested by tongues, I think it is no less dangerous not to pant after God at all and to be satisfied with a merely creedal Christianity that is kosher but complacent, orthodox but ossified, sound but soundly asleep. Let's break. Stretch your legs and work out what ossified means. <laughs> okay. I want to get just really practical at this point. What is my spiritual gift? What is my spiritual gift? Well, the short answer is short answer is you've probably got more than one. You've probably got more than one. In fact, I think you've probably got a truckload of spiritual gifts. Gifts, talents, passions, skills that God has given you that you can use to build his kingdom. I bet you've got a truckload. Some of them will be aligned with your great strengths, with your great passions. But sometimes God uses us in our weakness to build his church. And you've got to look back and go, praise God, he gifted me for that. Because I'm not, I, I wasn't, I didn't know how that, I was going to ever do that. Man, I feel like that every week. Every week. Trying to stand up and teach God's word. It's, yeah, I feel that all the time. So you've probably got many more than one. And uh, this is just, I want to suggest something to you. It's a, very, it's a very common question, what's my spiritual gift? I just think it's probably the wrong question. I think, it, I understand the question, and it often comes from a good place, hopefully because you want to serve others, not just because you're feeling insecure. Because take your security in Christ and your identity in Christ, and don't try and find it in whatever gift he's given you. But having sorted that out, you want to serve people. I understand you asking, what's my spiritual gift? I just think there might be an even more Christian question to ask. That is, how can I serve those people who are around me? What can I do that's going to serve them? I'll give you an example. The little church I go to, and it's a, it's a, a little church, I guess. It's got 60 adults and about 60 kids. Um, uh, 
there's a, we've been, only been there for six months, but there's a particular need. The particular need is they really need somebody to teach the older children on a Sunday morning. Just they've sort of blown out. They don't actually, the church I go to has no one in there, no one between the ages of 12 and 28. There are zero people in that category. None of you. <laughs> All right, my church. Um, <laughs> consequently, we don't, like a lot of churches, you, you know, have uni age type people or high schools who are running kids' ministry on a Sunday morning. We don't have that, right? It's, it's parents who do it. And it's just because the number of kids is growing, we don't have someone to teach the older kids. And they're really not being served well at all because they're lumped in with the younger ones and they're bored and that's bad. And, and my, my oldest son is one of them. And I'm thinking, well, what are we going to do the next? Like, this is... People are trying hard, but it's... And I just think, I'm, I'm just going to have to teach Sunday school. Like, that's what I'm going to have to do the next... At least the next six months. Instead of being in church, I will be teaching my son and others. Uh, and I'll do that every week. Because we need someone to do it. And I'll go to church somewhere else at night. Uh, am I a great children's worker? Oh, no. <laughs> I came out of Bible college and um, I came out of Bible college having, like a lot of people who grow up in the Christian church, you know, through their teenage years, I'd done heaps of youth work. I mean, I had years of youth work experience under my belt and, through co and I'd done it all through uni and then I'd done it sort of through Bible college. I'd done youth work for so long. You know, I remembered before, I don't know, it was way back in the dinosaur days of youth. Anyway, I'd just done heaps of youth work. I thought, finally, coming out of Bible college, people are going to take me seriously and I don't have to do youth work anymore. <laughs> oh, joy of joys. I was uh, at age 32 by this stage. I've been doing youth work all the way to 32. I thought, yes, finally I get to graduate from youth ministry. Uh, and then just the way God worked things and it worked out, yeah, I ended up a youth minister full-time for the next four years <laughs> doing youth work. I, and, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll just run the youth ministry. Right? I won't actually do the youth work. I'll just lead and oversee the ministry of youth and then our year six to year eight youth group, the leadership, uh, a lot of people sort of had to pull out of leadership and then suddenly they were stuck and it was floundering a little bit and, and I'm 30, you know, four and okay, I'm back running a Thursday night year six to year eight youth group with a whole bunch of kids and that's what I'm doing and am I good at this stuff? No. I'm teaching year six scripture every week and I was dreadful. There were moments that were absolutely terrible. That I, like moments I just think that re no, really it was bad. <laughs> and I learned from them and I thought, well, that, I just can't have another lesson like that ever. And so, you know, you work harder. Blah, 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 blah. Now, if I just said, look, the answer is just, just do whatever you want to do. That it's just... Sometimes 
people need serving. And sometimes God's going to use you in your weakness if you're willing. And we saw kids, not because of me, <laughs> but we saw kids come to Christ. And I, I cry. Kids who went from... Okay, it wasn't my terrible scripture class because I don't know what happened to that, but I trust that to the Lord. But it came from scripture to the year six, year eight youth group and then went to a Bible study and then went to our youth congregation, came on a camp and in a course of three years moved from being completely from, completely away from Christ and families, nothing to do with Christ, to on the final day I left that church, the very last service I went to that church, two of the girls got up and sang a song that they'd written about the Lord Jesus. I just, I cried. I am one crappy youth worker. <laughs> but God is powerful. And God is mighty. And he does his work. And so I look back and go, do I have the great gift of youth ministry? I don't know. But God gave me the gifts I needed to do the, to do the thing that needed doing, to serve the people who needed loving, he empowered me, he equipped me by his gifts to love people. So that's what I'm going to do at church the next six months. Run the pri older primary Sunday school. And learn from all my lessons before, so hopefully it's not a complete disaster. But, you know, God's good and God's powerful. That's, I just think, get out there and serve people. Love people. And who knows what gifts you will discover along the way. And partly because I just think at this particular, if I can be so bold as just to say, at, at your particular time of life, you probably actually haven't done enough ministry to really know all the gifts that God might give you. You just haven't had an opportunity enough to do enough yet. So I'd be pretty, I, I think it's just wise actually to try lots of stuff. Try all sorts of different ministry. Try, try to love people in all sorts of different ways of service because you just don't know how God might gift you for it. So be creative. Try lots. But I, I think there is a good indication there in terms of what are your passions? What are your passions? What are the things that, you, that, that get you excited? Think about how you can use those to build God's kingdom. And see if God might gift you and build a strength in you that he can really use for his kingdom. But don't, please, just be restricted to whatever you think your gifts are, your strengths are, your passions are. If that's going to mean there's a, there are people around you who aren't getting served. Because I fail to see where love is in that. It feels just a little bit too much about yourself. Anyway, uh, spiritual gifts just for now. I need to say this because to leave it out would be, would be terribly wrong because Paul makes a big deal about it in 1 Corinthians 13. I'm really just going to read this. He says, Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, right, he's looking future when the complete comes the return of christ the partial will come to an end when i was a child i spoke like a child i thought like a child i reasoned like a child 
When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. For now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. That is, he's saying the gifts of the Spirit that, we, that God blesses us with corporately and individually now are for now. When the complete comes, you're not going to need those anymore. However, and now faith, hope and love abide, these three, and the greatest of these is love. Love never ends. The gifts are just for the present age. They'll be surpassed by our experience of the complete in the age to come. And he brings us back to love, which is where we began and which is the right place to end. Don Carson again. The church's manifestation in time of the glories that are yet to come is not accomplished in the gift of tongues. Nor even in prophecy, giving, teaching. It is accomplished in love. The greatest evidence that heaven has invaded our sphere, that the Spirit has been poured out upon us, that we are citizens of a kingdom not yet consummated, is Christian love. So, draw together, getting on with Jesus' mission in the power and gifting of the Spirit. Friends, you have an opportunity, a God-given opportunity, to, in love to bring life the power and presence of God to a world that is languishing, suffering in death, sin and his absence from their life. You have an opportunity. More than that, you have God's spirit within you that is empowering love in you and that is equipping you to love people so that they might know life in Christ. So get on with it. Get on with Jesus' mission here and now. In the EU at Sydney Uni, in your church, serve, step up, use the gifts that God has given you. Work out what they are. Serve those who are in need. Love one another deeply from the heart. We've talked about how it would be great in the EU if we were great lovers. Because that is how we will testify to the university that we are Jesus' people. Because we love one another. So use your gifts, your God-given gifts, to love one another. We talk about having one area of service. Every Christian in the EU should be serving, should be loving in some area. Use your gifts. To, it doesn't mean filling rosters. It doesn't mean filling the, the keyholes at all, the, the particular... Just be creative. Build God's kingdom. You say, I'm really, really, really into street theatre, doing drama on that main... I just look, every time I walk up that main avenue, past, you know, up, I, just, I just think, man, we should be doing stuff here. Great. So why don't you write a paper on that, send that through the faculty system and all the way through to the GC, and 17 years later, we might make a decision. Just do it. Grab some friends and do the thing. Pray about it. Do it in the name of Jesus. You don't need an EU label on you. Just do it because you're God's. 
Do it because you want to see people on our campus saved. Do it in your local shopping centre through people. Be a person through whom God might motivate a whole raft of other people in your church. Let's reach our local area. I've got this idea. Or, or do you have an idea? Well, let's make that happen. Oh, you better get the churches. Now, just do it in the name of Christ as a bunch of Christians. Now, don't be stupid. Don't do dumb things that are going to bring dishonour to the name of Christ. If you're worried that you might, then go and check with a wiser, older, more mature Christian. Look, we just thought we might do this. Do you think that's okay? Step up. You are not children. But also... I want to just end by just saying it's not just about the here and now. And now I'm just being really, I don't know what I'm being. Anyway, I'm just saying I just want to now explode the, your whole in both time and space. I want you to think now, just for this next three minutes, I just wanted to think to you about the next 70 years. And I want you to think about the whole of the globe. And I'd like you to turn off the tape. Can you turn it off? Stop recording. Is it off? It's off. O breath of life, come sweeping through us. Revive thy church with life and power. O breath of life, come cleanse, renew us, and fit your church to meet this hour. Revive us, Lord, is zeal abating, while harvest fields are vast and white? Revive us, Lord, the world is waiting. Equip your church to spread the light. In the name of Jesus and the power of your spirit. Amen.